Hey there, Conquerors. This is the Conquering Columbus podcast, where we bring you the stories of everyone who is conquering their field here in our great city, from business and entrepreneurship, science, medicine, athletics, and more. Today on the show, we're going in-depth on real estate with Greg Shank, founder of The Shank Company. Greg has a lot of experience and insight into the real estate market, and we're confident you'll learn a lot from him during the interview. Before we get to that, as usual, we want to take a quick moment to thank some of our sponsors here on the show. And our first sponsor is Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. Headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio, one of our sponsors, Social Ventures. They offer resources, programs, and accelerators in social enterprise, and they act as a primary network for social enterprise activity in central Ohio. You can learn more at socialventurescbus.com. That's socialventurescbus.com. And our next sponsor is FMX. FMX is a computerized maintenance management system that helps organizations accelerate their operational success. And FMX enables you to streamline processes, increase asset productivity, and turn actionable insights into meaningful results. If you'd like to learn more, check them out at their website, gofmx.com. That's G-O-F-M-X.com. And our last sponsor is the Burlett Family Foundation. The Burlett Family Foundation is a local nonprofit that's committed to helping their partners build upon their strengths. They turn visions of what if into sustainable resources for the community. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get, you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. Today on the show, we've got Mr. Greg Shank joining us, and Greg is the founder and president of the Shank Company, Inc., Central Ohio's exclusive tenant, buyer, representative, brokerage, and consulting firm. Greg has 32 years of experience in the real estate industry, ranging from representing tenants and buyers in relocations as well as assisting clients in negotiating commercial space. And Greg has been teaching for 25 years and teaches seminars nationally to professionals who want to learn about the market, as well as to brokerage firms who want to learn the process of representation and corporate services. Greg is also on the advisory council for the Center for Real Estate at The Ohio State University and has won many awards, including the 2006 Micro Entrepreneur of the Year Award for Real Estate, CB Commercial's prestigious Presentation Excellence Award, and the Business First 40 Under 40 uh, recently, he established a scholarship at The Ohio State University Fisher College of Business Real Estate Club for students who want to excel in the field of real estate. We're really excited to have Greg on the show today to talk about everything he has going on, real estate, and learn more about his story. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Greg. 
Thank you very much, Mike. I'm happy to be here and happy to educate your audience any way I can. Yeah, we appreciate you stopping by and then just being willing to talk with us. So one of the first places we always like to start is get a little background, talk about life leading up today. You know, any, any highlights for you, previous roles, college, growing up, what sticks out to you along your path? Sure. Two, two things. I had a really rough upbringing. Eighth grade, my mom almost died of encephalitis, swelling in the brain, went to the hospital, didn't know if she was coming back. Next year, my parents got divorced and my dad took off to the other coast. So I became the man of the house at about 12 and a half, started working two jobs all through high school and college. Two years later in high school, my brother got sick with cancer and died my senior year in high school. So basically growing up sucked to say the least. I was a basketball player on top of that. I tore up my knee my senior in high school and that kind of put playing basketball in college on the back burner, but I was fortunate to get the Evans Scholarship to The Ohio State University, which is from Scholastic's financial need and golf caddying. And I caddied eight years growing up, and it was something that really brought me not only a lot of joy, provided good living, but I made a lot of great contacts, and I saw a lot of successful people and learned and listened and asked a lot of questions you know, from them. Uh, so fast forward, I go to Ohio State, didn't have a clue what I wanted to do with my life, didn't have a clue what the major in, became a marketing major, was so tired of being poor, I got out a quarter early, graduated at 21 with totally nothing. Interest rates at the time were 17%. I wanted to stay in Columbus, no jobs. Took a job that moved me to Southern California, lived right on the beach, LA. Everything about it was incredible. I said, I'm never leaving here, never. Well, four years later, I came back for a friend's wedding outside of Toledo where I grew up, drove down here to visit a buddy and I had a gut feel Columbus was gonna grow. So I came back to get into the commercial real estate business. Now, if you would have given me a thousand careers after college, commercial real estate would not have been one of them. I had never even heard of the term commercial real estate. And a lot of people have never heard of the term tenant rep broker or tenant rep advisor. I think if you ask 10,000 people, they'd probably, none of them have heard of it. They may have heard of a buyer's broker on the residential side, but not on the commercial side. I had one friend out of the blue when I lived in L.A. said, oh, I think you'd be good at this. And I kind of inquired about it. And I liked the fact that it was a kind of business where you controlled your own destiny. You got out of it what you put into it. Total straight commission. So I'm actually working on 34 years now of doing that. I joined the biggest company in the country. They didn't even pay to move me back from California. And it was pretty much here it is. Go at it. I was fortunate to have a really good mentor, which I really advise people to get growing up and no, no matter what they're doing in life, somebody that you can ask questions and not really be afraid to, you know, ask stupid questions in front of. And he taught me two very important things. If you try to earn before you learn, you get burned. And think about that for a second. If we don't get a solid foundation in life, no matter what we're going to do, chances are we're going to keep trying to get back up to that point rather than build upon it and grow. And the other thing is, especially in our business, he goes, in the first two years, look at it like going to school to get your MBA rather than trying to earn. So you do that and you spend that 18 months or two years really learning, you'll build that solid foundation and then your income will go up considerably from that point on. And I did that even though I'm as impatient a son of a bitch as you'll ever meet. And that's exactly what happened. Within 18 months, I was one of the top five guys in the office. I won the Rookie of the Year award. Nine years later, I did the biggest deal in the state, and I left to start my own company, which is now 24 years ago. And at the same time, I designed two courses on continuing education that went so good here locally. 
I started doing it nationally. And then I added speaking about the market and I study the market two to three hours a day. I've invested in properties nationwide for a little over 20 years, including my own office building that I used to have right around the corner from where you guys are here. So it brings a lot of good memories coming down here to uh, the Grandview area. Really, in a nutshell, it's been a dream. It started out as a nightmare in my life, and it's ended up as something I could have never imagined. So there's a lot to unpackage there. And a lot of people, when they look at real estate, um, they read the books, you know, obviously, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and things like that from more of the residential side are, are super popular. But then they start to dive into the details, and it's daunting from a financing standpoint. You might get one property, but then how do you roll it into multiple? So maybe as we unpackage real estate, and then particularly as it relates to commercial, let's maybe start talking about what a tenant rep broker is. Is that the terminology you used earlier? And, yes. and then And then start to talk about the business model so people can understand who are listening at a deeper level sure. what it's all about. In 1989, Ohio changed the law on agency. Before that, it was let the buyer beware. So if you went to go buy a property, you were at your own risk. The listing agent represented the seller. So you weren't going to find out anything if there was something bad in the basement and radon or a bad roof or HVAC system or whatever. The law changed in 89 to let each party know who represents whom in a transaction and a buyer's broker and or a tenant rep broker was born. So I'd been in the business about three and a half years when that started. I never liked selling anything to anybody. My whole mantra was helping people get what they want. So a lot of real estate people, both residents and commercial, got a bad name like a used car salesman because they were just trying to sell somebody something as quick as they can and moved on to the next deal. So I really did 180 switch from that. And I put a needs analysis together on where's the company been, where are they now, and where do they want to go? Do they have a strategic plan? If they didn't, I help them put one together. If they did, I help them implement it. So it was more of a long-term perspective, wanting them as a client for life, not just a single transaction. And there's really two modes of thinking in the business. There's that transaction side, and there's that relationship-oriented people. And you can think about that with every relationship you have in your life. So for example, I've been with the same accounting firm for 35 years, ever since I came to town. I've had the same lawyer. 20 some years. I banked at the same bank. 25 years. I want people that I can count on. I want to surround myself with other experts to help me. And I do the same thing for my clients. So the biggest thing we're doing is we're trying to find out where's that company been? Where are they today? And where they want to go? And today, obviously, in the shutdown, the biggest question is what's going to happen tomorrow? Are they laying off 100 people? Are they needing half the space they used to have? If they're in a retail store, are they closing half their stores? Are they going to a online presence versus more of a retail presence? If they're a warehouse, are they going bigger? Are they going closer to their customers? So there's a, a variety of things they can be doing. And with all of those, they need an expert to help them get through it. One they can trust, one that knows the market and is knowledgeable about it inside and out, and knows the process inside and out. So I look at myself as the master of the market and a master of the process. And I hold their hand, some a lot, some a little. Some people have never done a lease before. Some do it once every five, 10, or 15 years. The market changes drastically. If you said, what was the market like in 2008 or 2012 or 1986 when I got in the business compared to now, very different. So the biggest thing is trying to find out where they've been, where are they now, where they wanna go. And then we have a forum on our website that kind of goes through every one of the questions that are important, the who, what, why, when, and where. Well, I'm in Dublin now, and I think I want to go to Grandview. I got 10,000 feet now, and I think I only need five. 
I need 15 offices and three conference rooms and a kitchen and a storage area, parking for 47. All I wanted on the first floor, I got handicapped people. I need a great sign, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And everybody's needs are obviously different. Then we have a data bank that tracks all those things. So whether it's for lease, whether it's for sublease, for it's for purchase, and I do this in about 80 cities around the U.S., and I've got about 300 plus or minus around the world. So if I've got a client here that wants to go to Tulsa, Oklahoma, or Tacoma, Washington, I've got an expert in that market like I'm an expert in this market, and we work on it together. So I formed a think tank group in the late 80s. We used to call ourselves the Tenant Advisory Services Group. We had about 40-some of us. Now we're up to about 68 or 70. Today on the call, we had about 15. We're doing a Zoom call every week now to bring up issues. So the biggest thing, the difference between ourselves and everybody else, we're the only ones in Central Ohio that do tenant representation exclusively. We don't believe you can serve two masters. If you're the listing agent of the building, the lease it or sell it, you represent that seller. We exclusively represent that tenant or that buyer to give them an unprejudiced view of the market. It doesn't matter to us if they go renew a lease or move, we get paid the same. Or if they want to go to Grandview or downtown or Timbuktu, we're going to get paid exactly the same. And the beauty is we split the fee with the listing agent so our client doesn't come out of pocket one penny. And if they don't use that person, somebody, one like me, the listing agent keeps the whole fee even though they represent the landlord, not the tenant. So a lot of my platform and my speaking is about educating the public on this because they don't know it exists. So the analogy we like to use is it's like going to court without an attorney. Sure, you could go fight a lawsuit by yourself, but would you? Or going to, going to have your taxes done or a tax audit without a CPA. If you got audited today, would you do it without a CPA? Sure, you could, but would you? So the amount of time and money we save our clients is astronomical. Typically, I'm investing 80 to 100 hours into each project on a relocation and 30 to 40 hours on a lease renewal. We're surveying the entire market. We're looking at their lease. We dissect their lease. We've got a 44-point checklist, and we usually come up with a half a dozen lease clauses that are terribly landlord slanted that don't help them as their business grows and changes. This guy needs to downsize 10,000 feet. This guy's doubling in size. They just bought another company. Again, everybody's different. This guy now wants to control his own destiny and own his own property, becoming a landlord, become an investor. This person wants to dip their toe in the water and have a sublease of short term. Everyone is unique. And that's what's so interesting and exciting about it. The hardest thing about it is people procrastinate morning, noon, and night. So if I call you and your lease is coming up in a year, oh, we'll get to it later. And all of a sudden, it's two months before, and you look at your lease, and you have a 120-day notice period to the landlord, and you decide to move, and now you're holding over and have a 200% holdover penalty in the lease, so you're paying the landlord double rent until you move. And I see that nine times out of 10. So getting companies to be proactive about putting a strategic plan together and not procrastinating is the toughest thing I have to do. Once we get our foot in the door, we typically get the business because there is no one else that does this exclusively in Columbus. And I'm fortunate that I'm the only one that speaks and teaches in the state of Ohio that does this all over the place. So I'm fortunate I get a lot of referrals from, from all over the country. We just helped the division of the Supreme Court of State of Ohio for the third time in 20 years. And I tell people, if I can help the division of the Supreme Court out, we can help anybody out because they're a tough customer. So hopefully that helps enlighten you. You know, as far as the investment property goes, and you brought up a good point, 
First of all, I love Rich Dad, Poor Dad and Robert Kurosaki. I had my son, I've got a 16 year old. I had him read it at 13. If anybody wants to go down the path of being financially secure, that's a very good place to start. But there's a lot of different things that you can do. There's a lot of ways you can invest in different things. And if we had enough time, I could give you a hundred nightmare stories from even what I did. I owned my own little building around the corner. I owned another building with a doctor next to the MC movie theater. So early on, I owned you know some office properties. The doctor bought me out. I flipped them into five model homes. And unfortunately, I did that right when the interest-only loans were going on and people were putting nothing down when I put 20% down on these properties. And when that market crashed because of that in the early 2000s, most of those I took a bath on. And they were all beautiful, brand new model homes that I thought would be the most conservative investment there was. You would nice, you would love to live in any one of them. They were all at golf course communities around Central Ohio. So that really taught me a very valuable lesson. The other thing it taught me is I wasn't cut out to be a property manager, nor did I have those skills, nor is 99% of the public. And the big fallacy is you can get into rental properties and be your own manager and save money in that aspect. And I'm telling you, that is the worst possible thing you could possibly do. You want to surround yourself with experts, that trusted advisor team that I talk about, and having that right property manager is so important. Most of the time, that's making you money, not costing you money. And the 20 years that I've been investing in multifamily since then in partnerships, the only two deals that we've lost money on in 20 years is when the property manager did something wrong. Every other one has been a home run. So that is something I really strive in my teaching is get people to get the team and make sure, stick it yourself with what you're an expert in. If you're doing something small and you're handy, great. I'm not handy, nor am I patient. So I'm going to delegate that stuff out to people that are great in that area. The next thing, and I've got another forum on this for my website to help investors or tenants, as I said, if they just go to shankcompany.com under get started, there's two forms. So on the investor form, there's a lot of questions. What's your risk tolerance? Why is that important? Let's say one's conservative and 10's risky. You want to know what's going to let you sleep at night and what's going to keep you up at night. So if you're a three and you're a 10, you may not be a good partnership together. If a couple's that way, they probably shouldn't be investing together. And I found that out early on when I bought a property with one other person and we had different risk tolerances. Or you may need the money in two years and they may want the money in 20 years. Or they don't need cash flow every month and you do. So we have a variety of questions that we go through, whether you're owning it by yourself or in a partnership and a big group. Like, I mean, I've got one that I've got 240 people in on. So, you know, in that case, you're just giving them money and letting them do their job, basically. So there's no right or wrong with a lot of that. It's what's important to you. How much cash do you have? How much cash are you comfortable putting into an investment? How much is a lender willing to lend you, whether it's a bank or a a private lender? How long do you want to keep the money, the capital in the investment? What's your exit strategy, which most people never think about? You want to know your exit strategy up front. What is a realistic expected return? What's a best case and a worst case scenario? Okay, so a lot of people never think about that. Is there only a certain product type you're interested in? Or are you interested in anything just depending on what the return may be or those other variables? And do you want it in your backyard or are you willing to look anywhere? 
Okay, I own properties in about 12 states right now. So I don't care where they are as long as I'm getting the kind of returns that I'm looking for. But everybody's different. You may want to be able to drive around the block and say, that's my property. And I deal with a lot of people with very big egos that want to brag to their friends and say, yeah, that's my building over there. Okay, again, there's no right or wrong here. It's what your investment parameters are and what your goals are for short and long term. So hopefully that gives you a little better understanding with that. Yeah, and as you're looking at, you know, your investment risk tolerance, and you're looking at, you know, you're either going cash flow or appreciation. How do you begin to weigh those two different factors? And is there a right or wrong for people to concentrate on either one? Well, I'm not sure that there's a right or wrong. When you grew up, a lot of it will take from that. Uh, Were your family spenders or savers? So my mom was divorced. Everything was about save, save, save. Don't spend a nickel. Okay, we didn't have any extra money. If I wanted a pair of tennis shoes, I went out and worked and and bought it. So I had that mentality of I was going to save and I set a goal and I saved between 20 and 50 cents of every dollar I made for over 20 years. Now, most people don't save 5% of what they make. Almost every person I know lives so far over their means. It's incredible. So the two things to think about is what are your wants and what are your needs? Material things will not bring us happiness. Other than a nice car, really, I could sell that car tomorrow and I just got it last month. I could live in a one-bedroom apartment. Uh, material things mean nothing to me. What means to me being financially secure is being able to do what you want, when you want, with whom you want. Having choices. Okay, and I preach that to my son every day. I want to be happy, healthy, and have choices in life. You want to go to the movies tonight? You want to go out to dinner tonight? You want to go on spring break? You want to go to the high State Michigan game? You got choices. But, oh, sorry. Can't go out to dinner tonight. Sorry. Can't go to the movie. Sorry. Can't go on spring break. No, no way can we afford tickets to the Michigan game. So see, you know, the difference with that. So um, risk tolerance is, a, is about that. So it's, it's getting people to mentally focus on you're never going to get rich from your salary. You could be a president of a company and still not be rich because you're overspending. And you're trying to keep up with the Joneses and you're getting a bigger house and a bigger car and boats and crap and stuff and jewelry and crap and stuff. And you don't have any net worth. Okay, my father was a vice president for a company, but he lived in a very expensive area for California. He's 83 and still has a mortgage. So one is where you're living. One great thing about Columbus is our quality of life and our cost of living is a heck of a lot less than any what I'll call major city in the country. You go to Chicago, you go to L.A. Again, I lived in L.A. Four times the cost of living is Columbus, Ohio. Even though I see around the corner here half a million dollar townhomes from MI and Grandview Yard that just blow me away that there could be something that much. I grew up in a house that was about $40,000, a four-bedroom ranch that was pretty damn nice that I'd go back and live in today. Who knows what it's worth you know, today? So it's really that mentality of, not having to keep up with the Joneses and that, and paying yourself first, investing in yourself first. Now, whether that's, uh, I think your question was uh, cash flow or appreciation or both. Well, if you need the money, then you're going to want to have more on cash flow. If you don't, and you're younger and you don't have maybe a wife or dependents, then you're going for long-term holds and long-term appreciation. There's two kinds of investors usually. A fix and flip, which could be six 24 months and a long-term hold is typically five to seven years. Now we sold one of our projects last year. We owned 15 years. We made almost four to one on our money and we made almost 10% every, every year, maybe 12 out of 15 years. 
Okay. But again, there's no right or wrong there. It's what you need. You may say, okay, in 20 years, I'm going to retire. In 20 years, I got to put my kid through school, whatever the case may be. And, and you look at it that way. But the bigger thing for people to realize is you can become very wealthy through real estate, both through cash flow and appreciation and the tax incentives that, that the U.S. government has set to help on that. And that's why having a, a really good accountant is so crucial as part of your team, because there's no way you're going to know all those tax laws. I mean, I pay my accountant a great deal of money. They're handling all that stuff for me. It's really important. But the thing is paying yourself first. I don't care if you start out 25 bucks a week, you do what you can. And you keep there and it's amazing how much you'll see it build and build and build and all of a sudden your net worth gets tremendous. So again, and I've seen it firsthand where I've had friends make five times what I make in yearly salary. Again, I'm straight commission and they don't have any net worth to show it for. They may have a big house, they may have a lot of stuff, but really they don't have a true net worth to have those choices that I talked about. Hey there, Conquerors. We want to take a quick moment to talk about one of our sponsors, Studio 301. Kyle and his team have helped us redesign our website, taking the podcast in a new direction that we truly love. And we have some incredible guests here on the show. And Studio 301 has given us a website that reflects the caliber of the people that join us. And the Studio 301 team can help you with everything from brand strategy and redesigns to market research, videography, social media overhauls, and a whole lot more. You can go check them out at studio301.org. That's studio301.org. One question, especially for our listeners and people out there, young professionals, 24 to 35 is, hey, I don't have a lot of cash on hand to invest in real estate right now. What is the minimum that you would need to really invest in real estate? I think there's a misconception about it, so I'm curious to hear. Sure. You can invest in a REIT, a real estate investment trust on any property type fairly cheaply. I think some have $500 or $1,000 minimum. With a REIT, you don't control it. They control it. You buy it and sell it like a stock, but you're not going to get that appreciation you are like if you're buying your own property. So a lot of people are using privately funded properties to get in for no money down or little money down. You come up with a group. Maybe one person is handy. They're buying a house. You've got some money for the down payment and maybe you're borrowing it and you're getting charged 10, 12, 14% to borrow that money for eight, 12 months while you fix it up and, and, and flip it. So I don't do that personally, but I know two pretty damn young people that are doing it and making a great deal of money. And I actually connected two of them. One had a very good property manager. The other one's wife was an interior decorator. And I see a great amount of opportunity to buy. So what I tell young people is buy a duplex, live in half, rent the other half out. Buy a fourplex, live in one, rent the other three out. Build yourself up from, from there and keep reinvesting the money. Get a good relationship with three or four small bankers in town and tell them, this is what I'm going to do with my life. Have all your financials together, all right? Whether you make 25 grand or 250 grand is secondary. Have all your ducks in a row. You usually have one chance at a good first impression. If you do that, you will really be able to expand upon that and build quickly. And then, obviously, you hire someone like me to help you through the process on, on, on there. And, uh, you know, is it easy? No. If it was easy, everybody would do it. It takes a lot of discipline to be a good investor. And you may get lucky and find something, or you may buy something that's overpriced. And 
everybody makes mistakes. If they're not, they're lying to you. Everybody's got horror stories. If they say they don't, they're lying or they're not taking enough choices. The big analogy I always use is Thomas Edison tried 10,000 times at the light bulb until he succeeded. If he quit at nine, we'd be in the dark. So you can't be afraid of making mistakes. So I've invested in some very risky things. Twice I've lost six figures on a deal. Not fun. Takes a long time to make six figures in, in commissions. So you have to decide what you want to envision your life maybe. Paint that picture. I want to see myself here in five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. Goals in writing with date specific is super important. 95% of the people will never do that. They're aimlessly wandering. They're reacting at what life throws at them instead of being the dryer air of the bus and tell them where they want to go and what they want to do. So surrounding yourself with good, uplifting people, reading books like that. I mean, I've read every master teacher, speaker, trainer. I've gone to every seminar. I'm probably spending five to 10 grand a year on continuing education. I got about 200 hours postgraduate from Ohio State on negotiations alone. I probably got 100 hours of different education that I've taken. All right, I've done financial analysis inside, outside, you know, forward and backward because I want to understand how, how the properties work. So it really gets back to how hands-on you want to be or ought to be. You either hire an expert to partner with or you learn that stuff yourself, which takes a while. So the younger you are, the younger you have that compound of money to build. And I mean, that's the beauty. So if you do it, like I got in the business at 26, I had nothing and I knew nothing. So I had to make that determination. I'm not going to go out and buy the biggest house. I'm going to buy something small that's nice, fix it up. And then I'm going to start plowing my money back into other, other things. And, you know, if you can do that, you can build wealth, you know, very quickly, especially when interest rates are like stealing right now, like stealing. I mean, there's some home builders that are advertising under 3% for a loan. My first home in 88 was at nine. I bought a timeshare, which is not a good real estate investment, but something I enjoy at 17% right out of college. So the rates being so low as they are now should mean a lot more opportunities. You may be fighting with more people. So the ones with a plan will step to the front of the line and always be on the lookout. So what I tell people is I don't care if you take six months to get your strategic plan together once you do, be ready to jump when the opportunity that meets your criteria comes along. What about the conception that these deals are, that, that a good deal is only able to be found, you know, through connections or uh, whether it's skip tracing or some sort of technique like that? Are these deals in the public? Can you find a four to one return on your money by looking on the MLS or no. contacting public? I, I would say, unfortunately in life, a lot of it is is who you know, not what you know. So, for the guys that I told you, the younger guys, one guy's doing multifamily, one guy's doing fix and flips in uh, uh, Franklin. So the guy that's doing multifamily hired a guy, is paying him a hundred grand a year to call on every small apartment building owner, every single one of them. So you could go to your bank, to your trust department, who died, who got divorced, what partnership broke up. So you could go to 10 banks within a five mile radius of here and go meet the people and introduce yourself I want to buy every duplex that comes through your door, okay? And they're going to say, well, a thousand other people want the same. Why should I do it with you? So, yes, you want to create, develop relationships, and that takes time. So when I moved here, that actually brings up a really good thing. When I got into business, I had two beer-drinking buddies from Ohio State. I know no professional business people. I got involved with three or four different charities that were close to my heart, 
And I met other young professionals that had good values, good morals, good work ethic. And as, as we all grew, you know, we saw different people. Well, there's a good attorney. There's a good accountant. There's a good banker. There's a good doctor, et cetera, et cetera, and build, you know, that way. So the lower the price point, the more people are looking. So if you said, I want a four family in Arlington, 10,000 people are looking for that. If you want a four family in the Hilltop, it's a lot less. All right. If you want a $10 million investment, there's not as many people looking. Maybe you do that with a group versus doing it with two people. So you have to, again, go back to that criteria sheet. But uh, the mar- the investment market until this shutdown was extremely hot. One thing the shutdown has done is foreign buyers haven't been able to get over here. So secondary and tertiary markets, there will be a lot more opportunities for local buyers because of that. And our market's always in the last five years been one of the five or 10 hottest markets in the country for a secondary market. We're never going to be in New York or Chicago. We don't want to be in New York or Chicago. We don't want their kind of prices. And our returns are pretty darn good. But somebody's always buying or selling. Your grandparents retired to Florida. They don't want to deal with it anymore. Your Uncle Al lost his job. He needs the cash. Your sister has two kids going to college. They need the cash. Okay, somebody died, somebody got divorced, somebody's in a different change of life situation, a partnership split up because one guy wasn't pulling his end or needed the money. So you're going to have those situations every day. So the properties will come available during good times or bad. So now we're going to have a lot of properties come available because people will get foreclosed on because they were living over their heads. So in the next six months to a year, you're going to see a huge amount of, by this time next year, the foreclosure rate is going to be just gigantic. Uh, 15 years ago or so, not even that, I helped the largest law firm in the state of Ohio, and that's all they did was foreclosures. And for like four or five years, our numbers of foreclosures in Ohio was crazy. I forget the number, but it was very high. So we're going to see that again. The difference is now there's a lot of cash on the sideline. Banks are lending, even though their criteria is stricter. There's still going to be foreign money, but uh, and with the way interest rates are now, it's 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 very good. So my biggest advice to people is keep your cash liquid, be ready for the right opportunity, have all your ducks in a row with your financial plans and that, fill out that form on my website and really keep a thought in your mind of what's important to you. Because again, everybody's scenario is different and be ready to go when the time is right. It makes a lot of sense. And other than increased foreclosure rates, what other changes do you see on both commercial and residential side as a result of COVID-19 and the effect that's having on not just the income we have as as people, but also the way people are living their lives. I mean, we were seeing trends towards people moving into the city, more apartments, more big buildings. Do you see that changing as a result of everything that's going on right now? Well, my crystal ball is a little foggy on some of those questions, but let me take a stab at it. For residential, our housing market's been as hot as any market in the country. Again, our price points are good, good quality of life here. Um, you'll, you'll have some people that are overlived, you know, overliving what they have. Class A apartments downtown, for example, is going to get hit really hard. So the people that were over there, Class D apartments are going to get hit really hard for the people on minimum wage jobs that, you know, were furloughed. Class B and C apartments are probably going to be pretty good. And that's what we invest in, Class B. B and C apartments. 
some mixed use with the retail in it, it's going to get hit very hard. The retail component is going to take a long time to figure out of how do people do it? Do they do it by appointment only? Do they go by a more online strategy? You know, that sort of thing. Warehouse, our warehouse vacancy across the U.S. is as low as it's ever been. I think warehouse will be fine. Okay, office, I think it's going to depend where it is and what the quality of it is. I do think almost every company will look at their strategy and say, you know what, it worked pretty good without having people in the office. Let's cut back 25% of our space. I saw one architect say that they're going to make space uh, 25% larger to have more room in between people for, you know, so they don't get sick in between there. So they may say we need 25% less space uh, because we're going to let people work from home, but yet the way we design the space is going to give us 25%. So it may balance itself out. You know, that's the big one that's, that's going to be very interesting to see. I sold my building when I got divorced and I worked from home for a long time because I go to people. I go to meet them at Panera or Starbucks or their office or, or whatever. So I've done just as much Zoom calls on the phone, on the internet, where I've gotten just as much done as often. So personally, it really hasn't affected me at all. I closed three nice deals in the last three weeks. So I guess I'm very blessed in in that case. As far as the cleanliness, the the property manager's job is going to be harder than ever to make sure everything's sanitized, sanitized. So uh, hotels, uh, restaurants, uh, offices, and people serving anything people packing, airlines. You know, I read today that most airlines are not going to sit people in the middle to keep them farther apart, you know, that sort of thing. I had two trips planned for April, one canceled, one postponed. So, you know, I think it's going to, that's going to be a huge effect. I'm a partner in a hotel. I'm hoping it doesn't go belly up and it's a very high brand name hotel. I think that's going to be a real while till that gets sorted out. So retail is going to be the biggest thing that's going to have to keep the eye on. Residential, I think, is going to be fine, except for the high-end apartments, I think, are going to be really strained as people, uh, you know, have probably spent their last dollar in this government check thing. I've gotten a little grief about this, but they said 40% of our country can't pay a $450 bill. Think about that for a minute. 40% of our country. And I think if that's the case, people need to learn financial literacy. They've got time off. Go to the library online. Read all you can. Learn to become financial literate. Because even if you get a government stimulus check, half those people are going out and buying a TV or stuff instead of investing it in themselves in either education or an investment property, you know, or high, high interest rate credit card. So I'm a big believer in don't buy it unless you got it. You know, don't spend, try not to be a materialistic person with that. And your life's going to have a lot less stress and a lot more chance to become financially secure. So you're passionate about, you know, teaching people about real estate. You've established a scholarship at Fish College of Business. What do you typically see younger people struggle with when they're trying to get involved in real estate investing in the beginning? I think no different than me. Most people don't have a clue what they want to do when they're growing up. Some people are lucky to do and have a real calling but most don't. So there's a book that's been on the bestseller list for eight years I recommend called Strength Finders 2.0 by Tom Rath. I don't know if you've heard of it or not, but there's an online test you take when you buy the book that will tell you your five passions in life. And you take the test, you only read the five chapters that correspond to the five passions. The whole gist is do what you're passionate about, 
delegated don't do everything else. So I'll give you an example. You know, I got pretty much an academic athletic scholarship, but I was terrible in accounting. I barely passed. It was my worst subject. And a while, for a long time, it used to really bug me. I'd beat myself up over that. I'm not handy. My dad moved when I was young. He's handy as heck, never taught me that stuff, so I was never comfortable fixing nothing. I would really get down on myself that I couldn't do anything. Once I read that book, you know, a light went on. Polish the skills that you're passionate about. Become excellent at those. Don't worry about anything else, all right? It's not what your mom and dad want you to do. It's what's going to make you happy and passionate today and 20 years down the road. So that's, that's really step one. Step two is saying, what kind of life do I want to have? And how do I start? I start by putting money away, you know, get 25,000 in the money market, get a group of people that you trust with the same like mind and say, okay, we're going to put an investment club together. And there's a lot of them up there. You've heard of meetup groups and stuff. So one of my first buys, I had 17 guys in my think tank group and we built a strip center. We built it right when the market collapsed in 2008. Took us eight years to make a dime. We had a cash call during that time. And then we made money for about five years. And now today, about eight of the 10 tenants are temporarily shut. So we built built an outlot. We put a Chick-fil-A in there, cashed in big time, sold that, made a great return. But the big thing is trying to get, obviously, some cash to put down. Meet people you may not, your your listeners may not be familiar with the term, a hard money lender or a private lender. So there are lenders out there. There's, there's people like me that may have extra money that may want to lend to somebody on a project and make 10, 12, 14% for six months to 12 months use of the money, uh, you know, against the property that you're buying a duplex or whatever to fix it up. Okay. So that's what most people are doing right now if they're not buying a REIT or getting into some kind of limited partnership. I was very fortunate that I met a man in 99 who had sold his company, had plenty of money, was too young to retire. And he said, I'm going to start you know, buying properties and put a partnership together. So I helped him find his first property. I put my commission from that you know, into it. And for 20 years, I've been investing with him. He's got a billion dollars under asset now in 20 years. And he's got people all over the country, all over the world that invest with them now and mainly multifamily, what we call value add apartments where we're buying them and fixing them up, holding them long-term and and keeping them there. But the big thing to start is educating yourself and knowing yourself. Again, your risk tolerance, how long, how much you have, how much you're comfortable putting out. You're not going to put every cent you have. So I'm about 50-50 between the stock market and the real estate market. I've put most of my new money in real estate because I'm more comfortable with that. Okay. But I meet, I have two different guys that work for my stocks and my mutual funds. I meet with them every month with both of them with a fine tooth comb and go over things. So I'm meticulous. And again, I'm studying the market two, three, four hours a day, reading three or four magazines, three or four different publications, talking with people all over the country. I call it keeping my finger on the pulse of what's happening so you can survive a crisis. And since I've been through about three of them now, um, you know, I can tell you they're not fun. We don't know how long they're going to last. We don't know how long the bottom's going to drop. I mean, I've seen doomsday scenarios from some things I'm reading and some people think it's a blip. Nobody can predict that for a certain. So the way to protect yourself is have very little debt. Don't get tied up with too many material things. You know, have some cash on hand. If you don't have a three to six month reserve in cash for your lifestyle, 
it's probably not enough. So what you're going to use to invest is separate from from that rainy day fund is is all call it. That's really really important to have, and that that's going to have some lifestyle choices. Maybe you don't go out to dinner five nights a week. Maybe you don't buy 40 pairs of shoes. Maybe you don't buy that bigger car or live in that more expensive apartment. But those are choices. Life is all about being disciplined in choices that you make and, you know, not keeping up with the Joneses and then hanging around other like-minded people that want that same thing. And you will find them out there. You can also find good time Joe that'll spend every dime you have going to get a beer every night. And that's the big choice that you got to make. So where do you where do you go for your information? How do you keep your finger on the pulse? What are some of the resources that our listeners could check out? There's lots of different. I have a book list I'm happy to share that I can email you. Number one, there's lots of different magazines and online sources depending on the type of product type they want. There's separate ones for apartments, separate ones for office, separate ones for self-storage, you know, that sort of thing. The, you know, there's there's classes that people can take. So there's one called CCIM, Certified Commercial Investment Management. So if you want to learn how to analyze a property, that class, there's like seven or eight of them are about a thousand bucks a piece. They have online and in class that are like five day classes, super intense, use a programmable calculator. They have a separate class, how to use the programmable calculator to figure out a mortgage, to figure out things. And if you don't do it every day, you forget it. It's, it's that intense. Um, but if you want to learn how to do that, and I strongly advise people that are good with math or good with numbers to do it. If you're not, you're going to have to get a partner with a financial advisor or your accountant, you know, to help you to analyze those numbers. Okay. Even though I am good with numbers, I still have somebody double check and look at my numbers. But I will send you some resources and some books that that people can read both on sales stuff as well as real estate stuff that I think really helped me out a lot. And if you look at uh, Business First and Columbus Monthly and the Wall Street Journal and, you know, I'm, I'm reading two or three papers, but I've got a, a national real estate investor or something I really like. I read some financial planning stuff that is geared more toward financial planners than real estate people, but I get some good information from that as well. I've got like 17 friends, for example, that are stockbrokers. So I'm always picking their brain because they're not real estate experts. How are you advising your clients to get into real estate if you're not an expert? So most of them don't because they don't get paid that way. So there's a lot of people out there that just put their money in a mutual fund because it's safe or they should be balancing their portfolio with some in real estate and some in that. Okay. And again, that gets back to risk tolerance of how much you're going to do. But for most of your listeners that are young, save, 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 and then invest, invest, invest. All right. And choices and discipline is what's going to really differentiate you. What are some of your goals, initiatives, things you're working on right now? Where do you, do you, I mean, you sound like a guy who plans it out. So what are you working on in the next three, five, 10 years? Well, being a single dad of a 16-year-old, number one, is getting him through high school hmm. so he can have choices. And right now, he's more focused on video games than he is financial literacy. He's got a good work ethic. He's worked at Dairy Queen since he's 14. But number one is family and helping him get to the place. I'm a traveler. I'm a world traveler. So when I'm not hanging out with him, I'm traveling, either speaking, teaching, and I guess the other big soapbox that I'm on right now is teaching financial literacy because there's just too many people that are never were exposed to it. I wish you and I were all exposed to it in grade school. And I think today, kids from today on, every young kid's got an iPhone or an iPad in their face as a toddler, right? We should be developing classes for very young kids. 
about financial literacy, and I'd like to be somebody that helps uh, do that. I've gone into high schools. I've gone into Ohio State. I've gone into my son's school. You know, I've tried to go to teach people, you know, and just give them basically what I told you, you know. If they do that, our world would be so different and there wouldn't be these messes and tearing families apart. And, you know, most families and divorce is over money, even if they have a lot of it because they're spending too much of it. So that's where I'm hoping to spend a lot of my next 20 years traveling and enjoying for the fruits of my labor, taking care of my boy and educating people to get a foundation for lifelong success. Well, that seems like a great plan and, and a good place to pivot to our last question of the show. It's centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus, and that is live uncomfortably. And without telling you too much about why we chose that particular phrase, what do you think of when you hear it? How does it apply to your life and career? Being in straight commission for 34 years, every day is uncomfortable. I never know when or if I'm getting paid. I can spend 100 hours on something and they can change their parameters or the economy can crash like this. So you have to learn in life to live uncomfortably. You have to push and challenge yourself or else you'll be a much happier person if you do. So whether it's challenging my fitness, you know, as a former athlete, I still work out almost every day trying to be in the best shape. I got a big birthday coming up next month. My goal was to be in the best shape I could be in. So challenging myself, getting uncomfortably, I think to me means really pushing yourself out of that comfort zone, trying a new class going to meet a new person, going up and doing public speaking, getting on a bigger venue, all right? Investing in a different, you know, different thing because if not, your life will be boring. And one of the best people I see, you've got a Tony Robbins slogan over there. I've studied all his things from 20 years ago. One of my favorite slogans he talked about was called the rocking chair test. And I don't know if you ever heard of this or not. Think about you're sitting on your back patio in your rocking chair and think about the pleasure sitting here 20 years down the road of you accomplishing and trying everything you set out to do. And let that pleasure sink in for a minute. And then sit in that same rocking chair and think about 20 years down the road and feel the pain from not trying or attempting those things. So getting uncomfortable, trying something new, no matter what it is. So the first time I got on a plane to go to Spain and I didn't speak the language, and I didn't have a lot of money, and I'm doing, I was very much out of my comfort zone. The first time I got on stage in front of a couple hundred people, I was very much, you know, the first time I played an all-star basketball game in front of a bunch of people, I was very uncomfortable. The only way we grow as people is getting uncomfortable. Well, Greg, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate that answer, and thanks for telling your story here on Conquering Columbus. My pleasure. I'm happy to help any way I can. Again, I'd be happy to send you information if people want to look at our Website for those two forms at shankcompany.com under Get Started, one for tenants and one for investors. Definitely, and Conquerors, go check that out. We appreciate everybody tuning in this week. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll talk to you next week. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire 
to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.